Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see you here this morning on Memorial Day weekend. I can think of no greater evidence of God's common grace than the fact that there are men and women who have willingly laid down their lives for us. And so we should be most thankful to God for that reality. If you haven't met me, my name's Jason, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And if you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, welcome. I want to draw your attention now to the all-important, sufficient, holy, living word of the Lord as we find it in the 119th Psalm. If you want to turn your Bible there, which I encourage you to do, We're going to be looking at Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64. We continue to work our way through this magnificent psalm, and you remember that it's an acrostic psalm. And so what that means is there are 22 sections in this psalm because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, each section being represented by one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so each verse, the first word in each verse begins with whatever that Hebrew letter is. And it's beautiful to see in the original text. Obviously, we don't see that in the English text. And so what we'll be looking at this morning is the Hebrew letter section hate, not hate as in I hate you, H-A-T-E, but hate as in the Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so we're going to walk through this together as we look at these eight verses in this section. Let me read for you now Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64, reminding you, as always, that what we are about to hear is the word of the living God. May we tremble before it and receive it from him. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge humbly together in your presence that heaven is your throne and the earth is is your footstool. And so there is no house that we could build for you. There is no place we could offer to provide you rest. For your hand has made all creation, and so all these things have come to be. And yet, Lord, your word tells us that this is the one to whom you will look to dwell with. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. And trembles at your word. By your spirit, we ask that you would make us such a people this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism famously begins by asking the all-important question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is 
an equally famous response in which we learn the chief end of man is to enjoy God or glorify God and enjoy him forever. And in part, what the catechism is getting at here is the reality that every human being who God has made is living for something. We're living for some purpose. We're living for some end. We're living with some goal in mind. And the scriptures are abundantly clear that you have two options. You're either living for God and for his glory as you live in a covenant relationship with him and in obedience to his word, or you're living for yourself and for your own glory, being a law unto yourself and doing whatever tickles your fancy if you were. And we know the destination of each one of those courses in life. The final end of those who are in a covenant relationship with God and glorify him is an eternity with him and with God's people. And for those who seek to glorify vainly, I might point out, themselves, living a life that is self-centered, doesn't think about others, good or God's glory, their final destination is an eternity in hell. Don't rejoice to tell you that, but I love you all enough to be honest about that. An eternity under the wrath of Almighty God. And so the reality is that every day of our lives is spent living either for God or for ourselves. And what I love about Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64, is we're given a picture of what the life of a believer looks like who is living for God and for his glory. What that specifically looks like when our greatest desire is to bring glory and honor to him all the days of our lives. And so in order to see that, we're going to break up this section of eight verses into three parts. First of all, we're going to look at our portion. Our portion, we'll see that in the first half of verse 57, and then also in verse 64. It serves as like a bracket or bookends to this entire section. And what we're going to see as we look at our portion is that the Lord graciously makes himself our portion so that we want to glorify and magnify him in our lives. So first, we'll look at our portion. Secondly, as a result of the Lord graciously making himself our portion, we then respond with a promise. That's the second thing we'll look at, our promise. And we'll see that in the second half of verse 57 and verses 59 through 61 and 63. And what we're going to see the promise is, is it's this promise that, Lord, I will keep your word. I will walk in covenant faithfulness with you since you've so graciously given yourself to me as my portion in this life. And then the third point naturally follows. The only way we can keep our promise is if we're on our faces before the Lord dependently in prayer that he would keep us and empower us and strengthen us to keep that promise. And so that's the third point, our prayer. We'll look at that in verses 58 and 62. And so here's what I hope happens as a result of us looking at this together, brothers and sisters. Yes, I hope that we're challenged to repent in the ways that we need to repent in our own lives and turn to the Lord in faith. But I also hope that we will be blown away by the privilege that we have of being called by God to live a life for his glory with him as our portion, that we would just be amazed 
at the grace that he's shown us in calling us to himself. So with that in mind, let's look first at our portion. Look at verse 57 with me. The psalmist David says, the Lord Yahweh is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Now, this language is found all throughout the Psalter. I could take you to various places where the psalmist used this kind of language of the Lord being my portion. And so we can think of Psalm 4, for example, where David says, Lord, the world cries out for all the gifts that you can give. But David says, Lord, I'm content with you. You put more joy and gladness in my heart than the world unbelievers have when you give them all the gifts that they seek, all the grain, all the wine. I have more gladness in my heart because you're my portion. Or think of Psalm 16, where David says, the lines have fallen in pleasant places for me because the Lord is my portion. We'll look at Psalm 73 in just a little bit where David says the same thing. Lord, you're my portion. Now, why is this such a recurring theme all throughout the Psalter? It's a recurring theme because if you know your Bible really well, what you hear in this language is echoes to a very important time in Israel's history, a very important time in which the Lord, after having delivered them from slavery and captivity in Egypt to Pharaoh and their cruel taskmasters, bringing these plagues upon God's enemies, bringing them through the Red Sea, having them wander in the wilderness, then they're about to enter the promised land. And what does the Lord do? He says, I'm going to take you, you 12 tribes of Israel, and I'm going to give each one of you a portion of Canaan, the promised land. And so there's a consensus, everybody's counted, and each tribe is given a portion of the promised land. But again, if you know your Bible, you know that there's one tribe that's excluded from receiving a portion of land, isn't there? You know which tribe it is? The Levites, the tribe that Aaron belonged to, the tribe of the priests, and so you don't have to turn there, but let me read for you Numbers chapter 18 and verse 20. The Lord says to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So again, the Lord's excluding the Levites from receiving any portion of the promised land. Now we have to ask ourselves, why is that? What is the Lord communicating here? Because I think what's happening is the Levites are being set up before all of Israel as a sign and a picture of a deep spiritual reality that he does not want the Israelites to lose sight of. As they're working the land that God has given them once they've taken the promised land, they are to look at the Levites and understand they're a picture, a reminder for us of a very important truth. Because remember, this is an agrarian society. So when you're given land, it's not like, oh great, I have this asset that will appreciate over time. No, no, that's your livelihood. You're going to farm that land. You're going to build a house on that land. Your kids are going to inherit that land. It's going to stay within that tribe. And so in a real sense, this was your sufficiency. This was your life. That's the way they were going to think about it. And so the Levites, there they are with no portion of land. And what that is a picture of is true for all of Israel. Because what does the Lord tell them? You don't get land because I'm your portion. And you see, that was meant to be a reminder to all of God's covenant people that this land promise is not ultimately about some 
little geographical location in the Middle East. It's ultimately about the fact that I've saved you for myself. You are my people. I am your God. And so it's meant to point them to a deeper reality that their portion is God himself. That's why the Levites didn't receive a portion of land, to be a reminder to all of Israel. And David understood this. He understood this with absolute clarity. And so that's why he starts this section saying, Lord, you're my portion. You're my sufficiency. You are enough for me. David understood and caught the lesson by God's grace that he was trying to teach all of his people. Now, here's the question that we have to ask as a follow-up. The Lord is his sufficiency, but how did this happen? How did the Lord become David's portion, David's sufficiency? Because that wasn't true for everybody who was alive in the time of David. There were whole people groups and nations that would not say this. The Lord was not their portion. To apply it to today, you know plenty of people in your life, unbelievers, who would balk at the Lord being my portion, whatever. Look at how they live their lives. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit or the lack thereof. You can look at a person's life and know what they're living for. And so they wouldn't say the Lord is my portion. They would say my family is my portion. My job is my portion. My reputation is my portion. My pleasure, my comfort, my personal wealth all the things that I can amass, this is my portion. You know unbelievers who live their life in pursuit of those things, not for God and his glory, but in vain attempt for their own glory. So how did David become a recipient of God's grace in this way so that the Lord was his portion? It's purely an act of God's grace. It's not because he was smarter, wiser, morally superior to others. None of those things. It was purely an act of God's grace because David was once dead and lost in his transgressions and sins, hating God, not wanting to have anything to do with him. As you are this morning, unbeliever, if you're here, and as we all once were, brothers and sisters, before the Lord graciously saved us, we were dead to God. We hated him. And we were enslaved to the flesh and the world and the devil doing whatever our desires were at the moment being a law unto ourselves. And you see, it was when we were in that state and when David was in that state that the Lord graciously regenerated him, saved him. All the future things that Jesus the Messiah would do were applied to David, his atoning death for our sins, his perfect life that we failed to live, his resurrection, all of that was applied to David and applied to us so that we then what? Receive the Lord as our portion. He gives himself to us in his son and by his spirit, purely as an act of his grace. And so this is how it comes to be that David can say, the Lord is my portion. And here's why that's such incredibly good news. It's good news because the Lord is the one for whom we were created. Think of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal. What did he say? We all have this God-shaped hole, all fallen humanity, and we can try to fill all manner of things in that, and it will never satisfy. <laughs> because all we could ever put in there is finite things, and it was created for an infinite holy God and a relationship with him. St. Augustine says the same thing much earlier. Lord, you have created us for yourself, and so our hearts are restless until they rest in you. 
And so why is this good news? Because the one for whom our souls were created is now given to us. And we have the communion and fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we lost in the fall, now restored to us. And so it's such incredible good news because this is what we were created for. It's also incredibly good news because when God gives us himself, he gives us goodness itself. God doesn't just give us a good thing. He gives us himself and he is goodness. Anything that we can call good rightly is only good because God has created it. And so it received some goodness from him or it participates in his goodness. And so we can have all of these good things that come forth from God, who is the fount of all good things. But if we don't have goodness itself, God himself, it'll never be enough. But in the gospel, God gives us himself, the one who is goodness itself, the fount of all good. And he's eternally good. He never started being good. And so he'll never stop being good. He's eternally good. And he's infinitely good. There's no bounds to his goodness. And he is the chief good. There's no good that is greater than God because any good that exists received its goodness from him. He's the source. And you see, we have him in Christ. What incredibly good news. And we weren't looking for it. We weren't looking for him. And yet he gives us graciously himself. That's why it's such incredibly good news that God gives us himself in the gospel. And because he gives us himself, The psalmist is able to say, and we're able to say in verse 64, look there with me, verse 64 of Psalm 119, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You see, once you have the Lord who is goodness himself, when you look at all creation, even in its fallen state, and behold its goodness, what that's saying to you is behold the steadfast covenant love of the Lord. And so no matter where your eyes turn, you have a reminder of God's goodness and the fact that he is yours and you are his. He is your God and you are his people. Brothers and sisters, do you understand what this means? This means we can have all earthly goods and it ultimately doesn't really matter. And we can have all earthly goods taken away. And again, it really doesn't matter because we have him. We have the one for whom our souls were created. And so we can rejoice with the psalmist, even as he says elsewhere in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail. My physical existence will one day end from the dust I came, from the dust I will return. I will, we all will go the way of all the earth. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I love how Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, gospel minister, summarizes this. He says, the Christian knows no change with regard to God. He may be rich today and poor tomorrow. He may be sick today and well tomorrow. He may be happy today and distressed tomorrow. But there is no change with regard to his relationship with God. If God loved me yesterday, he loves me today. I'm neither better nor worse in God than I ever was. So let prospects be blighted. Let hopes be blasted. Let joy be withered. Let mildews destroy everything. I have lost nothing of what I have in God. That's the beauty of knowing God as our portion, our all and all. And here's the thing. 
since God is our portion, since he's graciously given himself to us in Christ, in a covenant relationship with him, and because his spirit is now within us, his spirit creates a response in us. And so our response then is our promise. That's our second point. We've already looked at our portion. Now we're going to look at our promise. And so look then with me again at verse 57, this promise that we make in response to the Lord being our portion. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. So what's David saying here? He's saying, listen, because you've given me yourself, I now give myself to you. As a living sacrifice, I offer myself body and soul to you to do your will, to walk in covenant faithfulness. And why does he make this promise? Well, he makes this promise, brothers and sisters, because this is the blessed life, to walk in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. You remember when we first started looking, if you were here, at Psalm 119, we saw that the first section, the Aleph section, talks about what the blessed life is. Turn one page and look at Psalm 119, verse 1 with me. Psalm 119, verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Who does God, through the author of this psalm, David, say is the blessed one? Who lives the blessed life? The one who walks in the law of the Lord. So this is really grace upon grace. The Lord gives us himself as our portion, and then we respond with a spirit-wrought promise that we will keep his word. He has been covenantally faithful to us, and so now we will be covenantally faithful to him. And here's the thing I love about this section. David doesn't just say that and then move on. He shows us what that specifically looks like in the believer's life, what it looks like in his life, because he was a believer in a covenant relationship with God, and what it will look like in our life as well. So here are four subpoints to our second point. Four subpoints that we're going to walk through that show us what it looks like in our life to keep the promise that we will walk in covenant faithfulness with God. First of all, we see in verse 59 that he reflects on how he lives his life. Look at verse 59 with me. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. So what is David saying here? He's saying, listen, I live a circumspective life. I don't live a life that's just driven by whatever my passion is in the moment. I'm not just pulled to and fro by every little desire that I have. No, I, I live circumspectly. I look at my life as I live it, and I set aside time to say, am I living in line with God's word? I reflect. I meditate. Now, this isn't an encouragement to get all introspective and nasal gaze all the time. Not only is that unhealthy, more importantly, it's sinful, <laughs> because then you're focused on yourself instead of on God. But there should be times in our life that we set aside and reflect and ask ourselves, am I living my life consistently with God's word? Because as we set aside time with that and we're steeped in God's word all the time, what the Lord will do is he won't come and whisper in your ear, but he will bring scripture to mind. He will bring it to mind and convict us. You're not living in step with the spirit here. So what David is saying is he knows, he's humble enough to say, in my life, as I'm trying to walk on God's path, my feet stumble. They go to the right and to the left. I veer off course, the course that God has called me to, the course that God has clearly laid out in his word. And so I've got to set aside time. And it's my joy to set aside time because the Lord is my portion. And I want to walk more closely with him to reflect and ask, am I walking closer with my Lord? 
Where do I need to change my steps so that I can be more faithful? So the first thing he's doing is he's reflecting on how he's living his life. Second of all, the way that he keeps this promise to obey God's word is he says, I'm going to obey quickly. Look at verse 60. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, as I set aside time to reflect on my life and how I'm veering to the right and to the left, when I see the ways in which I fall short, I correct course quickly. Once you reveal that to me, I realign my steps and I want to start walking in your path again. And this is so important, brothers and sisters, for us to commit ourselves to this. How many times have you sat maybe under the preaching of God's word or you're reading it in the morning or sometime during the day or you're listening to a sermon or you're having a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ who's sharing the word with you and you're convicted maybe by the other person's example, maybe as they're just sharing their life with you and you're like, you know, I really need to do better at that. And then you don't do anything about it. What are we doing? Not only do we have the sin of not walking in God's ways to begin with, now we've added to it the sin of not listening to him and correcting course when he's convicted us. And we've all done that, haven't we? And yet what David is saying here is, Lord, as a fruit in my life that your spirit has brought about, I'm going to quickly obey where you convict me and point out that I'm not walking in step with your word. He promises that this is what he will do. But it begs the question, do we set aside time to reflect like this and repent like this? Or are we so caught up in busyness and noise, 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 constant noise? Again, I'm not saying be overly introspective, but are you setting aside time regularly to let the Lord take his word and convict you? Are you asking the question, am I living a life that's consistent with the Lord being my portion? You're not answering that question so that you can make the Lord your portion, so that you can somehow earn him or merit him. You're saying he's given himself to me, and so I want to live a life that's consistent so that I can know him more and more and more. Are we doing that so that we can be convicted and so that we can obey quickly? So we've seen he reflects on how he lives his life. He obeys quickly. And thirdly, how it shows up in his life that he obeys God's word and keeps this promise is he is steadfast. He doesn't give up no matter what the suffering or persecution that he's experiencing. Look at verse 61 with me. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. What's David saying here? He's saying, listen, Lord, you've given yourself to me as my portion. And I have enemies that hate me because of that. That hatred's been there ever since the fall. You have the seed of the serpent, unbelievers, and you have the seed of the woman, those whom God graciously saves. And there's just this hatred. And David plays an important part in Israel's history because he's called by God to serve as Israel's king under this theocratic nation, under the old covenant. And so David has real enemies that want to kill him, that are trying to entrap him, that are throwing out traps so that they can take his life. That's the imagery that's being used here of a hunter. They lay out traps, cords with bait. The prey comes tries to get the bait and the trap is set and they're snared. They can't get away and the hunter comes and then ends the prey's life. And David's saying, that's what's happening to me. And so you can imagine how disorienting that would be. I've never had somebody try to take my life that I know of, but I can imagine that that would be very disorienting and frightening. This is like a real fear. And yet what is David saying? He's saying, I promise no matter what the circumstances, I will not forget your law. I will remember. This is the promise that a believer 
makes to the Lord in response to his covenant graciousness towards them. No matter what the suffering, no matter what the loss, no matter what the fear, no matter what snare the flesh and the world and the devil may lay out for me, Lord, I'm going to remember. I'm not going to forget. I'm going to keep walking in step with your word. How many times is Israel told again and again, remember, 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 remember. Don't forget. Don't forget. How many of the ceremonies are just that? Remember how God delivered you. Remember how God delivered you. Remember how God delivered you. Remember his grace towards you. And yet we forget so often. And yet what David's promise is here and what our promise will be as well to the Lord is even in the darkest night of my soul, I will make the priority. The priority will always be because my life doesn't consist of physical existence. Ultimately, it consists in my relationship and communion with you. And so that will take precedence over everything else. I will not forget your law. I will not forget you. So how is he obeying the Lord's law? How is he promising he'll do that? He's reflecting on how he lives his life. He's obeying quickly. He's steadfast and resolved no matter the loss or suffering. And fourthly, he says that he will fellowship with God's people. He will fellowship with God's people. Look at verse 63. David says, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. What is David saying here? He's saying, listen, I know I can't do this on my own. I know that I can't keep this promise and walk in the Lord's way, be covenantally faithful without the fellowship of God's people. Because he's acknowledging the reality that there is a reality that exists. It's not just him and God off doing their own thing. God has not just saved individuals. He's saved a people. I will be your God. You will be my people. And here's the reality that we really need to get our heads around. And we've had a hard time getting our heads around this ever since the fall. We need each other. I need you and you need me. We need to be mutually encouraged in one another's faith. We cannot do this on our own. And so what David is saying is, I promise that my deepest fellowships and nearness will be with your people. So his affinity with his friends, the people that are closest to him in his life, it's not because they like the same sports team or because they use the same brand of tools or because they both like college basketball or they're in the same life stage together, or they live in the same neighborhood. No, the affinity is because these are brothers and sisters in the Messiah, in Christ, in Jesus, who fear God and want to be faithful to him and to his law. In other words, there are others out there whom the Lord has graciously saved like a brand plucked from the fire. They have now received the Lord as their portion and they've made this promise that they want to keep in step with the Lord's word. And so I need to be with those kind of people. They're the kindred spirits in my life. And I need them. I need to be with them. I need to be challenged by them. Iron sharpening iron. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. And so David's saying, I promise that I will fellowship with your people, Lord, because I desperately need them. Now, again, I don't want you to miss. I know I probably sound like a broken record why David is doing this. Why has he made this promise? Why is he living this way? Not so that he can make the Lord his portion, but because the Lord has graciously given himself in a covenant to David as his portion. And so now as a result of that grace, there's a grace upon grace where he promises, I'll live this way, Lord. You've been covenantally faithful to me. I want to be covenantally faithful to you. And here's the thing, none of us does this perfectly. Don't think that, oh yeah, there's all these promises. You're probably sitting there convicted like I am. I'm not doing this as consistently as I should. 
So repent of it and look to the Lord in faith. But know this, part of his promise is that he will do this in you. This isn't law. This is more gospel. I'm going to do this in you. Command what you will, Lord, and then give what you command. And he will. Now, here's the thing. We can't do this on our own. Not only do we need God's people, we need him. He doesn't make us love him and receive him as our portion. And then we make this promise and he's like, all right, now go do it. And I'm going to be watching for every time you screw up. That's not what he does. Some of us live our lives thinking that that's what he does. But that's not how it works. He gives us the grace to make this promise. And then he says, and you need grace upon grace so that you will keep that promise. And so that brings us to our third point, our prayer. Our prayer is that the Lord will give us grace to keep this promise that we've made to him. So let's look at our prayer here in verse 58. David writes, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. We miss so much in the Hebrew here. But what David is literally saying in verse 58 there where he says, I entreat. In the Hebrew, you can literally translate that, I pray. I pray to you. He's on his face praying. I've made this promise. By the way, you'll see this all throughout Psalm 119. David makes resolves. David makes promises to the Lord. And immediately following them is, you've got to strengthen me to do this. I cannot do this on my own. And so he's praying. And go forward a little bit. I entreat or I pray in verse 58, your favor. That word that we translate favor in the Hebrew can be translated face. And so he's saying, Lord, I'm not just seeking so that I can like have a moral superiority of other over people or pursue some self-improvement plan and say, ha, look how obedient I've been. No, he's seeking the Lord. The reason he wants to obey the Lord and live the way that the Lord's commanded him to is so he grows closer in communion with the one who is his portion. Lord, I seek your face. What's the ironic blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. So David's saying, Lord, look at me. I'm praying to you, to your face, that I might know you more. And then what does he pray? Look at the second half of verse 58. He says, be gracious to me according to your promise. Now, are you noticing promise in the end of verse 58? Promise in the end of verse 57. I promise I will keep your word. That's what David says. And then he says, be gracious to me according to your promise. Same word in the Hebrew. So what is David saying here? He's saying, Lord, I've made this promise, but there is no way that I can keep it unless you keep your promise. What's the promise? Again, I will be your God. You will be my people. So Lord, keep your promise that I'm going to be your people, that I won't fall away because if you leave me to my own devices, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So what's the prayer? Take my heart. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Only you can do this. So my promise is completely and utterly dependent upon your covenant promise to me. If you hadn't first promised that, Lord, there's no way I'd make this promise because I know I'd just fall away. And so he's on his face in prayer that he might be closer to the Lord, that the Lord would keep him faithful. I love how John Calvin summarizes this point. He says, let us then desire nothing else but that God would draw us into himself, link us unto him, and listen to this, and grant us the grace to keep his commandments. 
That's why we're praying. That's why we're praying like the psalmist at the very end of this section. Look down at verse 64. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. I need you to teach me. Chad preached the whole sermon on this earlier in Psalm 119, so I won't go through all of it, but I don't just need you to teach me the content, Lord, from your word. I need you to cause me to love it and then have a will and a desire to walk in accord with it. So teach me your statutes. Do you see the utter dependence of David on the Lord to be able to keep this promise? He's on his face in prayer. And that prayer is so important that we see in his life that prayer is more important than sleep. Look at verse 62 with me. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. What is he saying? He's saying in the midnight hour, early hours of the morning, I'm not getting up because I've got indigestion. I'm not getting up because one of the kids woke me up, which happened to me last night at the midnight hour. I'm not getting up because I am so stressed out of my mind with everything that's going on that I can't slow my mind down. He's saying, Lord, I'm rising in the midnight hour just so I can praise you, so I can thank you for how you've saved me, for your righteous judgments against my enemies, for how you will vindicate your great name. I'm waking up in the midnight hour to be on my face saying, Lord, please keep me. Lord, please strengthen me. Lord, please guide me. When's the last time any of us did that? But you see, because the Lord is his portion, the Lord's more important to him than sleep. And to some of us, our sleep is really, really important, isn't it? But what are we seeing here? We're seeing the Lord at work in a believer's heart so that he's on his face in prayer, so that he'll keep his promise that, Lord, I'll walk in accord with your ways, reflectively, obediently, persistently, corporately, Why? Because you've given yourself to me. Brothers and sisters, you've never been given a greater gift than God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a life lived to the glory of God and for the good of the human soul and for the good of humanity. This is the blessed life that we have been called to live. And so because the Lord is our portion We can sing as we're going to in just a minute here. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, you're my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, We're humbled before such incredibly good news leaves us almost speechless in the sense that words fall short. Yet we know that if we didn't worship you in response, the rocks would cry out. And so, Lord, we thank you for giving yourself so graciously to us. We couldn't have been more undeserving, and yet you've lavished grace upon grace in us in your Son. We're thankful that he's done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to you, and you've given us your spirit. We now have fellowship with you, triune Lord. And so we promise that we will walk in accord with your word and quickly follow it up with a prayer that you would keep us. Keep your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, that no one or nothing can snatch us from your hand. And may we revel now from one degree of glory to the next on into eternity in the fact that you are 
our portion. Conform us to the image of your Son that we might make his glories known here in Bakersfield and to the farthest flung places in the earth. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.